What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. This episode has become an annual tradition. It is a conversation with Dave Collum, professor of chemistry at Cornell University. Dave puts together a year in review every single year. This year is almost 200 pages, and it is definitely worth reading. Dave and I sat down and we talked about many of the different themes, including his investment portfolio and how he sees financial markets, why he divorced his equities in 1999 and married gold and cash. And then we talk about things like the physical metal market, why he sees the U.S. stock market in deep, deep trouble and potentially headed towards a major correction. And then we talk about a number of other topics that he covered. Now, Dave has no shyness at all in his body. He's willing to talk about the things that most people don't want to discuss, and they even think may be taboo in society. I don't agree with everything that Dave writes or talks about, but it sure is interesting to listen to how somebody who's obviously a highly intelligent person thinks about the world and many of the different developments that have occurred recently. Other topics include why he thinks climate change is a scam, why he thinks that writing about certain topics is essential to American democracy and freedom, how we can think about biological males competing in women's sports, And then we even get into things like why we are already being ruled by algorithms and how authoritarian CBDCs, digital IDs, facial recognition software, and carbon budgets all are marching us towards digital authoritarianism. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dave as I do every single year. This one is a doozy. So I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dave Collum. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Today's episode is brought to you by BASE. BASE is making it their mission to bring a billion people on chain. What exactly is BASE? It's a layer two offering a seamless experience for both builders and users. With near zero gas fees and rapid transaction speeds, BASE is shaping the future of the on-chain world. BASE is a canvas for everyone with hundreds of apps in the ecosystem, whether you're an emerging creator, a seasoned developer, or someone exploring the on-chain space for the first time. BASE is designed to bring your ideas to life. So if you're looking for a platform where the future of on-chain is being built daily, BASE is your destination. Join in and make on-chain the next online. Learn more at base.org or follow along on Twitter at buildonbase. Again, that's at buildonbase to see cool things to do on-chain every single day. Today's episode is brought to you by Trust and Will. I've gone through a number of different changes in my life over the last few years. I got married, I had a kid, and I had to start thinking about how could I ensure that my wife and my child would be okay if anything ever happened to me. That's where trust, wills, and estate planning come into play. Now, most people, what they do is they get introduced to a friend, an uncle, or someone in their local community. It tends to be someone who's really expensive, a lawyer, an accountant, or somebody who does estate planning, and they just simply are using a one-size-fits-all template and just telling you, pay me thousands of dollars, and I'll use the same thing for you as the guy down the street. 
but that's not what Trust & Will does. They have a trusted online estate planning product that starts as low as $159, which allows you to now protect your legacy from the comfort of your own home. Get to leverage their excellent customer support available via phone, email, or chat. They have thousands of five-star reviews and a rating of excellent on Trustpilot. It takes most people 20 to 30 minutes to complete their estate plan with Trust & Will. And not only that, but if you go to trustandwill.com slash pomp, you'll get 10% off. Plus, you'll get free shipping of all your estate planning documents. So go to trustandwill.com slash pomp and make sure you get an estate plan in place. Whether it's for you or one of your loved ones, having a trust and or a will can literally be the difference between someone being taken care of and someone not. Go check them out today at trustandwill.com slash pomp. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I have Mr. Dave Collum back again. Uh, it's going to be a spicy conversation, as I think we've had multiple times. Um, but Dave, I thought the first place that we could start with your year in review is on the financial markets. Uh, you've got all the weird stuff. you got the conspiracy theories. you got all the craziness in there, just like every other year. Um, but the financial markets really, I think, tell a story that weaves many of these other things in there together. And what a lot of people may not know about you is you had this epic investing run up until about 2009. And mm -hmm. then- you started to change your mind about how financial markets worked, about assets that maybe you wanted exposure to or didn't want exposure to. Help us understand over the last couple of decades, like how has your thought process about investing, especially the macro market changed? And then how is that being expressed today in the portfolio? So, so I actually should preface this with one of the most cunning emails I got after publishing this thing. I get a lot of support. Uh, from a, a good friend who's a who's a famous money manager in, in Europe. And, and he said, I, I think you've lost your edge in investing. And I think it's because you're focusing on all that other crap. And I, what I think he has backwards is two things. One is that I'm hunkered down for the apocalypse. And so if I can get a 6% return, then I can say a huge win because I'll take 6% all day for the time being. Um, where where what I do will either work or not is when we do have the next serious downturn, which I think is going to be a whopper, and how I do during that, right? That'll that'll de determine whether I've been smart or stupid. Um, but 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 he also has it backwards in the sense that I'm sitting on my hands like crazy, right? So I've got my position, and now I'm just waiting for the markets to to you know game day to start and and. And so what do I do? Well, I focus on the other crap. And and that's the way it's what else am I going to read? I can read all the overvaluation crap I want. And it's not going to change my mind at this point. I'm just waiting for the recession and the, the serious sell off and what I think will be exceedingly painful period. Um, so in any event, so by way of investing, I started out 100 percent bonds, 1980. And there's people say, well, it would have been nice to be in equities. Well, at bonds had about a 12 to 15% return for that decade. So it, it, it by no means was a bad move. Um, 87 crash. I was chatting with a senior colleague in the coffee room and, and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, and I knew nothing about investing. When I was a kid, I thought I wanted to go to Wall Street, but I'd, I'd long since not paid attention. And he said, you ought to own equities. And, and I sort of looked at it, I said, you know, you're right. So post 87 crash, I moved heavily into equities. And I was a raging tech bull, which, which is incomprehensible to the people who know me now, incomprehensible. And I was buying, you know, I didn't buy dot coms. I looked at eBay. 
um, did some math and said, no, it's overvalued too much. Um, and, uh, but I own Dell and I own WorldCom. I got, I got into WorldCom when it was a tiny little company in, in, in Mississippi. And I got out in 99. Just so, so that was quite a feat. That was, uh, that would turned out to be just sort of raw luck. I was fear of the markets. So in any event, so I became a tech bull probably in early nineties. And I really believed, I mean, I was really Kool-Aid swelling, rocking and rolling. And, and then it wasn't so crazy either. Um, and then it got crazy. And in mid 98, I had studied the structures of markets enough and I moved half my equities out. I just, I just went to safe haven and said, there's just something wrong here. And, uh, and then almost to the day we sort of marched our way into the Asian crisis. And I said, you know, you're either a genius or an idiot. I'm not sure which, because you left half exposed and you got half out of harm's way. And I swore I'd get the rest out if it came back and it came back. So by mid 99, I was selling my Dell and Warner Lambert and, and WorldCom and, 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 and rational software and all, all these companies, BMC software. Um, my old roommate in college was Goldman's, um, software. He started their software group, guy named Rick Sherlin. And, uh, so I was getting some pretty good information out of him and, and then I just, I, I, I emptied my, my portfolio completely out of equities by mid 99. And the NASDAQ was rocking, making me look like an asshole. And, uh, and I, I went into gold. I went into gold cash and I actually went into the prudent bear short fund, which I've done twice and done well twice. And I will never do it again because I'm just, I shouldn't be shorting. It's just, it's, it's a fool's game, but, um, so I, I was buying gold from 290 down to 270, and then I couldn't take any more pain. Um, but I was I had a standing offer at the local coin shop, said, look, you get a couple ounces of gold, I'll pay you cash for it. And for about the next um, I don't know, seven years, up to about uh 457 an ounce, I, I bought gold. And funny story, at one point he said to me, it was actually at 457 an ounce. And he said, he said, don't you think this is the top? He knows I'm going to buy it. So he doesn't care. I said, no. Um, how many guys are buying gold from you? And he said, four total. And I said, and the other three are friends of mine, right? He said, yeah. I said, I sent them to you, didn't I? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's not like a mania to you. And he said, no. And uh, so in any case, and then I saw, so I, so I Carried the gold all the way up to 1900 in in the early 2000s. The best analysis I ever did is I bought Philip Morris. And I did, the analysis was right. So I, yeah, the fact I made 700 percent of WorldCom does it, I'm not proud of it because I didn't know what I was doing. But but the Philip Morris, I knew what I was doing. I, I really did it right. And so I did well by that and uh, the, the various tobacco stocks. And then I also went into energy. I tried to go into commodities. I talked to Jimmy Rogers' partner for about two hours. And I talked to a market maker in the Rogers Commodity Fund. It was too sketchy for me. I, I don't like sketchy. And 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 it would have been fine. Um, so I just went into Fidelity Commodity Equities. I just started buying, you know, the, the funds that had all the big cap oils and stuff. And so um so although I actually had years in a, at least one year in the 90s where I made a 100% plus return, and that's the, that's the exposure to the market. And this is where it's crazy. This shows you it was a mania. I was 150% exposed. 
And so I made like 150%. And so, so I, um, but my best decade was, was the, the, the 2000s. And it was not the best decade in terms of absolute numbers, but while, while equity investors were getting ravaged by a couple of serious bear markets, um, I compounded 13% a year through from January 1st to 2000 to January to December 31st of 2009. And that kind of got me on a bit of a map. People sort of, I, I wrote about it and people noticed it and said, oh, wow, that's different. Um, and then I wrote about the subprime crisis on May 6, 2002. Now, I wasn't seeing this. I don't do spreadsheets. I was just picking up from guys like Bill Gross and Josh Rosner and guys saying, look, we, we, got, a, we got a subprime crisis brewing here. They're, they're really, you know, General Electric's going way out on the risk curve. This is nuts. And, and you know, the, 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 the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were looking sketchy. And I wrote about in 2002, um, I told my class, I, I occasionally blurt shit out to the class for no reason. And I, in March of 2007, I, I turned to the class. I said, the banking system's about to collapse. And the indicator was two things. One is the market ABX index was dropping. That was the derivatives market. And no, mainstream press wasn't watching it, but the bloggers were saying, wait a minute, this thing's just going down, down, down. What's going on in there? Then there was, I don't know if you know this woman, Tanta woman named Tanta. She was blogging on it. Her name was Doris Dungy. And the old veterans will know this. Uh, she was seeking alpha or something. And um, and she was talking about, she says, you don't understand the chaos underneath the surface in the pipes of the system, what's happening. And that's when, you know, they were selling squares and cubes and stuff and, and you know, CPDOs. It was just crazy time. And so um, I would have, I did have a prudent bear short for that for that downturn, but but I would have been bolder, but I didn't trust counterparty at that point because I was really a doom and gloomer at that point. And so, um, so what amazed me is it really took two more years after I could hear the market crack. And this is what people don't understand. They, they hear this cracking noise and that's the market breaking and they think, well, okay, but nothing happened, so we're fine. I go, no, that's the first of many, many, noises that you're going to hear over the next few years. And, uh, so I was confident. I was so liquid. And at the bottom, I bought some more tobacco, but not much of anything because I was convinced there was another factor of two in the downturn. And, and because we had done so much damage and what, what I didn't see coming, and at best I can tell no one on the planet saw coming, was $30 trillion, right? So there's people said, oh, I saw it. I said, they do anything they have to. I go, show me your blog where you said $30 trillion. Because I remember when they bailed out, you know, the Bear Stearns for $30 billion. And it sucked the oxygen out of the room. It's like, holy moly, what just happened? Wow, that's scary. And that's just chump change, right? That's just a bad day in some regional bank now. Um, and uh, and and so I, I just and and I'm not sh and 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 of course you'll hang out of the gold because 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 if they're gonna dump thirty trillion, but but something. Somehow the, the inflation didn't catch, and it's because they were basically shoving it into the Federal Reserve as reserves, and so it wasn't getting into the paws of the people, and so it wasn't going direct, as they say. Um, so I really miss the inflation thing. I thought inflation should have gone wild. Um, 
And uh, so I was basically liquid gold. You know, I, I had the, the, the energy to about 16, which I overstayed my welcome there. Uh, started going back in 20, um, thanks to Jesse Felder. And thanks to kicking Exxon out of the Dow, I said, you kick Exxon out of the Dow, replace it with Salesforce.com. I'm buying Exxon. That, that's real straightforward. And, um, but not a big position, big enough that I care, but not big enough to, to really, to really, you know, it's not life changing. And, um, and, um, and so I've been, you know, sort of compounding four or 5% a year for through a decade where everyone else is partying like crazy. And so, so I've got people saying, you know, you're such an idiot, you know, when are you going to admit you're wrong? But, but there's one metric on wall street that, that is never going to be broken. And that is that, that, that the valuations of the market will mean regress and, and the markets are, yes, absolutely. True? Yes, I do. Now, so um, one of the ideas that I see circulating online, and I, I don't know yet uh, all of the nuance surrounding it, but, but I think the main idea is QE and what they did in 2009 broke the market. And now mm -hmm. you have this world where uh, anytime there are going to be these market drawdowns, they rush in, they're going to you know kind of outlaw bear markets, outlaw recessions. Right. Um, and because of that, the historical valuation metrics are harder to use to evaluate today what is overvalued and what is not overvalued. So how do you kind of balance the, the macro environment may have changed, the tools they use may have changed when you're using those valuation metrics? Um, well, so, so to make the assumption that the valuations are never coming down means that you will own investments. Let's say we're 150% overvalued. So you're making, so the markets are priced to make 40% of what you would if the markets were priced at fair value. So um, there's a plot in my year in review. I've got an even better one that Ron Grice sent to me um, that shows the S&P over the last 100 years corrected for M2 money supply, which is a far cleaner inflation metric than, and I don't think he's published that. That's the funny thing. I think he just sent that to me. I'm, I'm not sure. And I don't know if I've never seen, I've been watching for it. I've never seen anyone else publish it. But but what it shows is, is, the, is that if you correct the markets for M2 money supply, which seems like a stunningly clean way to correct for inflation, um, over the last 100 years, the markets have drifted downward yes. slightly. Now, so the conclusion that I drew from that is that is that all you got were dividends. So now, back at the 100 years ago, markets were returning 6.5% yield dividends, and now they're returning 1.5%. So, 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 so if you want to say the markets are going to stay up at this price, you have to say, and therefore, I'm going to get a return of about a third of what I would have normally gotten. Now, he sent me a, a modified version of the plot, in which he did the total return. And the total return turns out to be, uh, over the 100 years, 3.79%. That is the dividends, right? So th that's it. So, so my claim that it's all dividends, that's what the average dividend was over that period. Now. The interesting thing is that um, that that Buffett, in his faith, iconic 1999 Fortune article, said that the after you're all done. And by the way, his his uh, Grice's plot does not include taxes and fees and shit. 
It's just the market index. So you take a, a 3.79% return over 100 years and start pulling that other shit out of there. You're hurt. I mean, you're really hurt. Um, Buffett said the most you can ever hope to get by the time you're done unwinding everything, but he didn't include taxes, was 4%. Now, everyone says, oh, Warren Buffett knows everything, but then they ignore that 4% part. And um, and so that's about right. That's what Grice's plot shows. And um, and and that's what uh, Ben Graham said years ago. And Ben Graham said, look, stocks and bonds are going to return the same over a long period, period. Um, Ed McQuarrie followed up on that same thing. So people have an expectation, which, as you know, since you suffered your way through this damn thing, um, as you know, for the last 40 years, the markets have been on a roid rage. So, so the recency bias is not from 2000. It's not from, it's not from 2008 or nine. It's not from, it's not from 2000. It's not from, it's, it's not from 1987. It's from 1981. And it turns out the most stunning statistic from 1981 is that the market valuations, this is getting to your point, the market valuations, not the, which are inherently inflation corrected because it's the price divided by something that attract like GDP or sales or revenues or Tobin's Q or whatever. Um, Kate Schiller. Um, it, it turns out that they compounded a little over 3% a year for 40 goddamn years. That means you had a three, three point something percent tailwind from the low of 81 where you couldn't give that shit away to the high where people would buy any piece of shit that, that moved. Um, so, so, so then the question I asked rhetorically is what happens over the next 40 years when that 3% turns into a negative 3%? And it will. I just don't know when. But it will. I mean, there, there's a there's a there's a sort of a if you go back to you know ancient Rome or something, you'll find there's a there's a margin of return that's modest, but it's above inflation. You know, that's what you demand. You're you're not going to ask for inflation payment. You're going to ask for something a little above. And and um, and if if you're priced to get almost nothing, then you'll get almost nothing. So you. Essentially, in the letter, say that you divorced equities in '99 and you married right. gold in cash, right? Right. Um, right. When you look at that, uh, there's a whole new generation of people who actually agree with your thesis and say, you know what, I want to hold some cash to spend, and I want to hold uh, some sort of asset that will benefit from this inflation that has you know sound money principles. Right. They seem to be going towards Bitcoin, right. not gold. Right. Each time we've talked, you've had a little bit varied view of Bitcoin. How do you think about it now? Well, I know an awfully large number of smart people who are enthusiastic about Bitcoin. What keeps me away from Bitcoin, people don't understand a couple things. One is I'm a bit of a Luddite. And, and Bitcoin is a digital asset. And I don't even trust the damn cloud. Right. I, I don't trust. I, I, I have trouble with it. I've had cloud storage screw me up and, and, you know, I password problems and stuff like that. So, so I, I find, and at one point I couldn't get stuff out of box. I put a bunch of important stuff in box. I couldn't get it out. And they said, Oh, by the way, you're over your limit. Now you got to pay for more storage. I'm going to get my shit out. Are you kidding me? And, and so, um, so Bitcoin, I, I know I can hear all the Bitcoin guys going, Oh, but they can't touch us. I go, 
I kind of don't. First, first and foremost, I don't need the hassle of having to worry about the tech behind Bitcoin. Now, I think if I spent huge amounts of time reading about it, I would come to terms with it. But um, it, it's still a digital asset to me. It, it's still something that I could imagine somehow when they finally suck me. If if I go into Bitcoin, one could argue that's when you guys should sell. Right. Um, and every hodler out there seems to want me to go into Bitcoin. I, I'm like the holdout or something. I don't know what it is, but boy, they all go at me. And, and they're civil. I, I, I think the hodlers are, you know, I think they understand that I, I'm sympathetic. Um, the second thing is, is I am confident that at some point you guys are either going to be absorbed by the state or do battle with the state. And that's a capital S state. That's not that's and 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 you haven't yet. Right. That day is in the future sometime. And, you know, so once in a while you hear a yelling or, a, you know, if Christine Lagarde or someone say something that's sort of a shot across your bow and you guys flip her off. And, you know, I, I, but but at some point, I think you're going to have to do battle with the state. I think it's going to be epic. It's going to be battle of the bastards, I call it. And 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 you guys are going to win or lose. I'm not interested in participating in that battle right now. I, it hasn't caught my attention. Now, Lynn Alden made one of the more interesting cases. She kind of presented it as the, the equivalent of stitching diamonds in the hem of your clothes, escaping some totalitarian regime, and you have your coats, right? You have your coats. And that I'm more sympathetic to, except I'm too old to be running from you know I, i'm the old guy sitting in the middle of kiev going fuck you i'm not moving right so so uh one of your big themes is that the totalitarianism is increasing all around us and to a degree it's already here right especially in this kind of digital um overlords so it's surprising to me that i know you are sympathetic but also you don't want to buy it well, so the other problem is, is I, I wouldn't go there's there's it'd be very hard for me to picture going in deeply enough to be life changing. So as I, you know, I, I did this great analysis of Phil Morris, and I made a lot of money over the years. But it's not life changing. If all those re, I, I, I bet on I bet on Russia's the RSX index. Two days before I had owned it for several years. I wasn't alone. Grant Williams was interested in it too, and Cuppy and these guys. But two days before it went south, I said, I'm, I'm taking a flyer on it. And I bought it. And then it went to zero, right? It might come back. I don't think so. I, I think by the time it comes back, JP Morgan will find a way to steal my RSX. But um, but but at the same time, there's no way I would have gone deep enough into it to really make a killing because I don't I don't do it that way. I average in over time. So I could average into Bitcoin over time. Um, people say what price would interest you? It's not about price. It's 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 about it's about the 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 battle with the state and the annoyance of having to worry about my codes and shit. It just it's just not. It's not interesting to me. I'm 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 sort of gonna hang with gold, and I have physical gold, um, and so it's I'm you know Bitcoin light by that model. I'm a, I'm a godler. Um, so let's talk about some of the uh, topics that you covered. Okay. Um, 
And there's a, there's talk. a third there's a third one that I haven't completed writing on, which is the darkness. It's total dark lord shit. I, go ahead. Uh, I saw that in January 2024, the third part will come out. So if if I can finish writing it, it's so painful to write. I don't know, but go ahead. All right, uh, digital totalitarianism. Uh, you have a mm -hmm. section, uh, you say, we are already being ruled by algorithms and our future is offering up authoritarian CBDCs, digital IDs, facial recognition software, and carbon budgets all enabled with AI. It is a march towards digital to authoritarianism. Is there any way to stop it? Or is this just like a foregone I conclusion? So. I don't think so. So, so the, the, the troublesome thing is, is that, um, is that the basal level not even humans trying to get us sort of level, but just the, the creep of, of every time you use your credit card or every time you go through security at the airport or whatever, you're, you're, you're handing a, a, a decision over to an algo and it's going to say yes or no. It's always binary. Yes. Let them through. No, kill them, you know, whatever. And, and every time you put in your credit card, it says, yes, you, you get to buy that item or no, you don't. And 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 I, I got to confess, I'm annoyed when I have to go find my phone to log into some website because it, they want to do the double double password shit. And, and I go, you know, I, this site's not that important to ask me to do that. I, my bank account's fine, but this site's not worthy. And so so um, we are going to increasingly ask. Um, computers to make decisions for us. So my wife has health problems, as you know, and, and I have to go through all these health portals and, and I'm reading my own lab reports and shit. And I, I made a joke, I thought it was funnier than shit about how you're going to do your next colonoscopy using a, a robotic gerbil fitted with a GoPro camera that you run off your iPhone. Um, but medical care is getting like that. And, and so we're really, we're every time you hand over the one time I got, I was on a, a, a help call. I was talking to a helpline and, and I'm really sympathetic to what it's like to be on the end of one of those, right? Because everyone's always pissed off about something. And I lost my shit because I kept saying, look, I don't understand this word that you're using. And then I got off the phone after having lost my shit. And I thought, were you talking to a computer? Because it, it felt like it was circling around. And, and I realized, I said, you, you're talking to AI computer. And, and I, I don't want to talk to an AI computer. I don't want to read a blog, not knowing if it's written by AI or a person, right? I don't want to read AI blogs. I think there are times where an AI write-up on something would be instructive. But we can end up in a point where everything online is just AI. And by the way, it turns into gibberish fast when it's just AI. Someone mentioned that recently where they said when AI is feeding off of AI, it spirals out of control real fast. Now, they might fix that. But that's I'm right now reading Michael Malice's book called The White Pill. It's it's a stunningly good book. It's about the Soviet Union and how awful it was. And and you're left with this. Do not let that happen here. It's so so here here's the the short story of of this book just to get your attention. We know that Stalin killed forty million. What no one knows, or very very few people know, is how. What transpired while forty million people were getting killed? He didn't just line them up and shoot them in ditches. It was society completely imploded on itself. 
and and it just turned it just it just went completely toxic and and somehow was created by first Lenin and then Stalin but 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 the, the message is very clear to me don't let that happen here and you can see it happening here now we're miles and miles from that maybe the US and the western world doesn't have the russian dna like cultural dna to ever go there but it's possible and I, i'm I'm infuriated with the current administration who seems to have no respect for the Constitution. And, and you can say, oh, he's just a right winger. You know, no, 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 I would be appalled. I, you know, I didn't support, I, I, I went totally negative on George Bush when he got us into Iraq. You know, no, I'm not just a right winger. But, but this administration is, 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 is totally throwing the basic principles of who we are under the bus. What are some and, examples? Uh, the border. Let's start with the border. So they're just letting people flood through the border. I, I'm well, not I, against immigration. And, and Dave, yeah, let, let, let's unpack this because I think that um, there's a big portion of the audience that uh, they understand kind of what's happening, right? They see the videos online, etc. Why do you think it's happening? Do you think it is uh, a conspiracy that you know they've come together and they said, "Hey, we should do this because you know I've seen theories that uh, it'll increase the number of people who vote Democrat all the way to uh, the other extreme, which is just like, no, this is a complex problem. People are incompetent, and therefore, rather than try to come up with a solution, they just say, "Screw it, let whatever happen happens," and that leads to you know hundreds of thousands of people come across the border every year. Like which yeah, that do I don't, that one I that one I don't believe. Okay, I, so I don't e I, I don't even I don't even see a token effort right now. If you listen to that that liar press conference uh, press secretary Karen, what's her name? Um, she's out claiming right from day one they tried to get control of the border. There's not a shred of evidence, not a shred. So so no, they they welcomed everyone. They could shut off the border. They could have done it. They fought Trump the whole way when he tried to do it. Um, and so uh, there's there's a benign interpretation. One benign interpretation is that someone's watching Peter Zihan and saying we need more people. And Zihan is, you know, this demographer who's a, a neocon of a higher order, but he's a demographer. And he says, look, our we're at 1.6, you know, population replacement, which means we're going to have trouble. We're going to have a terrible time, but not as bad as other countries, but we're going to have a terrible time. And so so one could argue that someone has a twisted view of how to solve that problem. That's the most benign. Um it looks to me like it's an attempt to destroy the concept of a border. So it's it looks to me like it's a globalist move. And 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 if you know, there's two nationalists in the world who are really devout nationalists that 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 you can name. Uh, there's more, um, but 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 there's two who really stand out. <clears throat> and the two are 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 Trump and Putin. And 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 who's getting the most guff, right? Trump and Putin. And and so I would say that um, I would say that um, that the United States stands between the globalists, the guys who really do want to have a borderless world for some reason that I don't quite understand, except for power. Um, power is everyone seems to want. Um, and so you destroy the borders, right? And you get, you know, I used to laugh off the Soros arguments, but then he starts, you know, he's been helping place DAs and stuff. And, you know, the January 6th to me was one of the most heinous periods. Post-January 6th was the most heinous periods of, of American history, uh, that, that we've locked people away for years. 
for having gone to a protest. And I can hear people screaming, going, no, no, they did this, they did that. No, they didn't. Those were feds in the crowd. Uh, the, 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 the crowd, nothing was going to happen without the feds intervening at January 6th. Nothing bad, nothing really bad was going to happen. And, and then, you know, there's 40,000 hours of tape and they won't, they still won't release it. But whenever they do, you go, holy shit, that guy didn't do anything. And he got how many years in prison, right? So I don't know if you know who this person is. Um, Felix Somari. There's I know a the book, name. The Raven of Zurich. This yes. took me months to track down. Um, and for those that don't know, uh, he was very well respected in he was able to call a number of market tops, bottoms throughout the world wars and, right. and um, uh, became you know, somewhat of a trusted confidant of many bankers, economists, et cetera. And right. in the book, he has this uh, story when he was a young kid. I think he's like 12, 13 years old. Uh, there's a shoemaker that he's talking with and the shoemaker uh, has an accent. And he's, you know, a shithead 12-year-old, right? He starts making fun of the of the guy's accent. And his dad basically slaps him and says, you know, hey, we don't do that here. And in the book, he claims that from then on, he was immune. I think the exact quote is, I was immune to the virus of any nationalism. Right. And so I think nationalism is- doesn't require, though. We have states, right? Yes. I don't sit there and look at the guys in Pennsylvania and say, oh, those fucking Pennsylvania douchebags. It's just a way of organizing society. So break down the difference between what I think some people see as like uh, nationalism driven by hate and a zero-sum game versus kind of more the organizational things, the the pride of being from a nation, the, you know, what I would consider much more innocent view of the importance of nationalism, not so much a zero sum game, but maybe actually a positive sum game. Well, so, so if you, I've, I've read a lot of anthropology, for example, I I love history. Um, As society got bigger, Right. We went from, you know, a dozen guys running through some jungle in Borneo to uh, across the savannah to to sm- bigger groups like 150. You start picking up structurally different societies by by necessity. Right. So the pure anarchists just don't get it. Uh, the, the, you you have to somehow start building structure. And I think there's kind of a natural evolution of structure. And so at, at this point, the 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 the, the, na- the 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 nation state is kind of the natural um structure for the current world now the globalists might say yes but we're heading away from the current world and therefore we should go to a globalist world but it's also a world that they want to run and that's you know it's like it's i have a quote in there where someone says you know you know you know follow people who are trying to find the truth you know be wary of those who actually think they found it um and so um so the nation state still to me makes sense. And 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 um I, I don't want some guy in Brussels telling us to not eat meat, for example, which is the stupid shit stuff that are already pushing, right? So all, already the, the globalist view of the world is looking so stupid. So stupid, evil, some combination of the two, that I, that I don't want anything to do with it. It just doesn't make sense. I actually think in some sense, one of the reasons why I'm a pro-choice guy, but Roe v. Wade in some sense makes sense. Because I don't see there why there's why why Mississippi should necessarily have to follow the same moral values as California. 
they're really different populations in a profound sort of way. And and I know that Roe v. Wade happens to be a highly charged issue, but there, there's still little sort of states' rights mentality in me. And I, I don't think we should, uh, I think there's a lot of things that should be at the state level. Um, but, but I see things happening on a daily basis that, um, that seems so evil to me. Like now there's two states that have tried to keep Trump off the ballot. Uh, the, the woman in Maine, I did a tweet the other day that got a lot of support. Um, I said, should she be tried for, um, um, for um, depriving both us and Trump of our civil rights? You know, there are crimes in which you deprive someone of their civil rights. That's how they convict some people on stuff. And I said, if she takes him off the ballot, that's depriving me of my civil rights. And so I think she should be convicted if, if, if it turns out the story that we're being told is correct, right? That always comes back to that. For all we know, it's a fake story, for Christ's sake. For all we know, a robot wrote the damn thing. Um, and, but, but, but the, it was truly unbelievable to me that the Colorado Supreme Court, for example, could take him off the ballot. These are, these are supposed to be super learned judicial people. And I think a five-year-old could explain to them why they made a mistake. I mean, I think I, I could explain it. I used to go home from faculty meetings and talk to my you know, son who was like seven. Say, Thomas, here's the setup. Boom, boom, boom. What do you do? And he'd say, here's what you do. And I go, yeah, my colleagues don't seem to see that part. you know. Um, and so, so the fact they took him off a ballot is to me truly extraordinary. And, and it's, and then you have to say, but it, it can't even be for the reason that it appears to be, right? It's, it's not, there's something else altogether. They're try, if it was a Republican court, I'd say, well, they're trying to generate support for the guy because it sure as hell, I'm, I'm voting for Trump, period. I want to see him get in there and go green goblin on him. I, I, I've just lost my shit at this point. I, I, so, I, don't, I, so I want context. him to get in there and cause trouble. There's context here that I think if people haven't read the year in review, they need to understand. In 2016, I think you say you begrudgingly voted for him or were Very cautiously. Reluctantly. Cautiously. Right? Um, and then in 2020, you were kind of agnostic. Explain a little bit as to why were you cautious or you know kind of reluctant in 2016? Why agnostic in 2020? And now I hear both in the letter, but also uh, from you, it sounds like a much more kind of hardened, heels dug in, I'm yeah. voting for him. What, what is that evolution like? Well, so the first evolution was I, I had been aware of Trump, the developer, Trump, the narcissist, Trump, the. So in 16, um, in 16, when he ran, I said, this guy's just Looney Tunes right now. I actually had read a, an article written in 1984 about him as a developer. It was really interesting because everyone found him beyond annoying, but he always got the deal. He always got, they'd say, you know, everyone wanted that piece of real estate. Somehow Donald got it. And I can't understand how he did it. And people would say, you know, after a while, you just say, Donald, just tell me what you want. Just, just, tell. and that's how he works. Right. And, and I, I watched the documentary recently and they, he built a huge office complex one time and he didn't get any of the signatures. Wife gone, oh, that's so criminal. And I go, that's chutzpah. I, that's that, no, that's that's not just criminal. That's a guy who who really and and the the concrete workers were on strike, but his 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 building was getting concrete, 
And you go, oh, that's because he's with a mob. He's such a bad person. I go, he's getting the job done. Right. And so there's always two that those sort of two sides to Trump. And um, and I watched him knock off 13 Republican candidates. I'm going, uh, boy, that was impressive the way he did that, even though someone referred to it as incompetent. And I go, he just knocked off 13 people. Right. Now he's going against Hillary. Right. No one else could have done that. That's not incompetent. It's extraordinary. So uh, I could have voted for Bernie over Trump. Because I thought, oh, he's generic. They'll neuter him. He can't do any damage, although I'm not positive that's true. So Trump gets in office. You'd be hard pressed to name something he did that was really bad. You really would be hard pressed. You can always oh, a liar. I go, oh, no one ever lies in D.C., right? Trump's a bullshit artist. Biden's a liar. They're different. Trump will say, I caught a fish this damn big. And, and Biden will say, I graduated from this college, first of my class, and he didn't graduate from that co college, right? One's a lie, one's bullshit. Um, and so I, I had no trouble voting for him in 2020, but I wasn't sure I wanted more the chaos. I was thinking if they Dems could come up with a candidate and bring us back to earth a little bit, that would be okay with me. And then watching what they've done to him over the next four years, I go, okay, well, let's elect him. He knows where the spoons and forks are. He knows, he knows when he first got into office, he couldn't build a cabinet. He couldn't, he didn't know who to trust. He, he couldn't trust anyone from either party. Neither party wanted him in there. He now has his war, war um, cabinet. And I want to see him do it. Now, it could get ugly, but it's not his fault. Not in my opinion. So I have heard uh, stories through the rumor mill of people who either worked in the administration or uh, know Trump that when he first got into office, uh, there would be situations where, you know, he's sleeping at night and he would get a phone call. And so the staff member would come in and say, you know, excuse me, president, I'm sorry to wake you up, but uh, there's a general on the line in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever. And basically they were calling and they needed the president's approval for you know a strike, very similar Something. to o o Obama having to give the final order to go after Osama bin Laden and, and things like this. <laughs> and supposedly Trump would be like, was he a bad guy? <laughs> right. Okay, we'll, no, but, we'll kill him. <laughs> right. The, the simplicity of it. I, I mean, there's there's and he's not stupid. If you watch his documentary, you watch the things he did. People think, well, you know, he's totally un, uncontrolled. He went to military academy. He was a leader at the military academy. I mean, he's not, he's not the he's not the loser he appears to be. He's idiosyncratic. That's a that's different. And so, um, and you would be hard pressed to, to you know, so the for me, one of the drop dead issues that allowed me to vote for him the first time was he said we have to get along with the Russians. And I said he's dead right. And then, of course, they hang Russia collusion all over him and they got nothing. They got, you know, the, 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 the Durham report gave a little bit to everyone. But when you got to the bottom line, he explicitly says we found no collusion, period, none. And, and the, I think it's treasonous to make this shit up the way the Democrats do. I, I think that if you really I don't know what the formal definition of treason is, but in my skull, I have a definition of treason. And when when you're. And to me, it's a it's pretty close to a coup d'état when you're doing the shit they did against him. 
And 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 it looks to me to me, the Biden administration itself looks like a coup d'etat in, its, in, in the reverse sense. I mean, they're doing shit like when Biden was told by the Supreme Court, you couldn't cancel student loans. He just tried to find another way to do it. I, what do you do when the president ignores the Supreme Court? They can't just have to rule on him every day. At some point, they got to be able to say, no, no, Joe, Brandon, whatever your name is, stop. And and I don't care how many right wing Supreme Quarters there are. That's sort of the bottom line for me. And so, um, and and so I, I I think the Biden administration has been truly horrific. And I think the January six um, Stalin Lenin show trial component of January six um, is a horrific chapter in history. Horrific chapter in history. And I, I have friends who say, you know, you do the time, the crime, you do the time, right? And I go, well, first of all, show me the crime. Second of all, you know how I defend a January 6th person? It turns out your brain chemistry changes in a mob. Temporary insanity. You could get psychologists who'd say, yes, temporary insanity place. But th- there wasn't shit done. It was feds in the goddamn crowd doing the shit. And, and so I, I see things that are so, so non tocqueville so, so anti to everything, everything that, that, the sort of fundamental principles that we used to think we stood for. Maybe I was just dead wrong. Um, there was some bad shit at the turn of the century in the United States that was happening, some really non-constitutional things. Um, and so so that's that's what's got me angry. And and the problem is is it's it's not making me happier. And it's it's also I don't see where it's getting me closer to some sort of solution. So that's the problem. Let me ask one last question on politics. We'll go on some of the other topics. Um, it sounds like uh, you believe Trump will win. Yes or no? Oh, I don't know. No, I think they'll rig the election. Okay. They did, so the, what, they did the first time. 2020 was rigged. 2020 was rigged. Explain your logic for, uh, for having so much confidence in that now. Well, first and foremost, I think there's plenty of evidence. Second of all, most importantly, the one that I go, look, look at both parties, by the way. No one wanted him in the White House, correct? Neither party wanted him in the White House. They did everything imaginable to impeachments, indictments, you name it, to keep him out of the White House. Is there any chance? They said, oh, but we can't rig the election. You want to bet on that one? No. It's insane to bet on that one. Of course they rigged the election. They've been rigging it for years, but it's kind of a capture the flag rig. Whereas, you know, you know, dinking around over here, ah, oh, they stole Pennsylvania from us, you know, shit like that. This was a wholesale rigging under the guise of the COVID lockdown and the mail-in ballots and all that shit. And Carrie Lake has a great case for the rigged election. And if you you dig into the Smartmatic voting machines, it turns out through a series of shell companies, they trace to Beijing. I mean, it's just it's a it's a colossal mess. And and the problem is uh, there's there's no evidence they're going to ever run a clean election. They'll run a clean election when they don't care which side wins. Then they'll let it be clean. But we know we all hate these guys, right? We know we'd vote every last one of them out of office. But they have a 97% re-election rate. That's not rigging. That just shows you the hopelessness. The Democrats' superdelegate model is an abomination. 
right? The, the fact that 30% of the goddamn delegates come from insiders who get to just vote however they're told to vote. That's just staggeringly. But but it turns out that if you look at the structure of political parties, they're just non-for-profit organizations. The only way you'd stop the Democrats from doing what they do and the Republicans from doing what they do, I think, if you let's say you wanted to stop it, I think you'd have to charge them with some sort of RICO charge and say, you fundraised under false, under pretenses. Pretenses means false, it turns out. I just kind of realized that under pretenses. You, 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 you committed fraud by raising money the way you did. That's, that's how I would go at them if I, if, if. Now, on the other hand, who wrote the book? God damn it, I can never remember the name. Someone wrote a book about the legality underlying the, 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 the court actions underlying the uh, 2008 to nine crisis. And they talked about all the cases that, that they built against Wall Street guys. And some, some appeals court would spend three hours looking at the data and throw it out after they'd spent months building a case against them. So no one went to jail, right? Nobody. A couple of little guys, a couple of, couple of Indian guys from a hedge fund, right? Yeah, get the Indian guys. Why not? We don't care about them. Um, and so, uh, and so, I, I just see criminal treasonous levels of behavior from a system that I don't remember showing that. Let's talk about climate change, which is another ah. topic. <laughs> topic ah. that uh, I think you explicitly said climate change is a scam uh, in the letter. Explain Completely. what uh, what, what you think is going on there. Well, I have to go back a few years. I've got an email trail, which I've got people pestering me about it. And I'm saying, look, all my friends believe it. The scientific community believes it. I don't know where you're going with this, right? I actually was sitting with the Secretary of Energy one day and told him I was agnostic and he flinched. I said it would take me 10,000 hours to figure it out. So I'm not qualified to cast a vote. Um, my brother and some other guy pestered me into digging into it. And I finally, out of frustration, I said to the other guy's name, David Walker. He, I said, as far as I know, there's no credible scientists who don't believe this story. And I have to sort of go with the science, right? This is pre-Fauci. Um, he said, oh, yes, there are. I said, send me names. So I expect him to send me names of people from Sheboygan State College of fine arts, you know, and things like that, and that they're not going to be credible. And I, they could know, but, but if I'm going to overturn a globally accepted theory, it's going to take more than some guy from Sheboygan, right? And um, he sends me about 20 names of people who are at elite institutions. So I go, okay, but they're probably a bunch of climate scientists who said this model sucks or that model sucks. And therefore, you know, we got to redo them. And, and the deniers are turning that into, therefore, there's no climate change. So I start Googling them and that's not what they're saying. So you hit guys like, you know, right away, you hit Richard Lindzen, former head of the Na National, National Academy of Sciences, uh, geophysicist at MIT, says it's the biggest hoax in history. And you go, Whoa, whoa. You find out the American Physics Society put together an elite panel of a dozen guys said, you're charged with looking into this. And they all came out deniers. They all said, this is just crap science, just total crap science. 
From that group emerged, you know, Freeman Dyson, right? That guy's one of the legends of physics. Will Happer, I think, was on that committee. I'm not positive. but So I can name for you Nobel Prize winners in physics um, that say that it's totally a farce. So, so a guy like um, um, Richard Coonan wrote a book, and I think he thought he could have an effect. It's not about science, but he was on the committee. Um, and so he wrote a book. And what he does is he kind of tries to tightrope walk where he says, you know, you know, man influences climate, but, and then he proceeds to torch it. Now he's, he's internally inconsistent because he says, he says there's not a snowball's chance in hell that the scientific community has the capabilities of predicting the temperature 100 years from now. And here are the 10,000 fucking reasons why. Here are all the things they can't account for. You know, physicists at Stanford says the error bar on their numbers five times the number. You know, there's that the former founder of Greenpeace says this is a complete farce. The guy who ran the NASA satellite program monitoring temperature said it's a farce. You find out that some of the big climate change guys are compulsive liars, pathological liars. And um and then you start picking up the little tidbits, like, you know, the melting glacier. Oh, Dave, look at the melting glacier. And you find out that underneath that glacier are 1,200-year-old trees, which means they grew there 1,200 years ago. And therefore, the glacier is not melting after a million or 10 million or 100 million years. It's just going back and forth, oscillating. You know, I, I saw a headline that said, it. you know, they hasn't been this warm in 600 years. And I go, let's rewrite the headline. It was this warm 600 years ago. Um, and and then, you know, the, you see the picture of the starving polar bear. If there's anyone watching this who doesn't have the image of that starving polar bear on an ice floe, it looks pretty emaciated. And you find out the world's expert on, Arctic mammals says that the polar bear population has tripled since the 70s. The world's experts on the, the Great Barrier Reef say the reef oscillates back and forth and it's not climate. Uh, the increasing salinity of the of the uh, of the ocean turns out didn't hold up. That got blown out of the water last year. This year's winner, the Nobel Prize in Physics, said that it's it's such a farce. They came in account for clouds. Clouds, you know how important clouds are in influencing the Earth's climate and the sun's radiation. And, and so um, what you find is I, I got to sit down with uh, Konstantin Kyson for about an hour this, this fall. He's the guy who gave the talk at the Oxford Union. And if you haven't watched it, you really got to watch it. Um, and, and I said to him, I said, when you started digging into climate change, how long did it take you to figure out that it was a farce? And he said, oh, a couple hours. It's that bad, actually. And so what you discover is the 97, and Michael Crichton picked out this one, the 97% consensus number, which they all cite, lying their asses off. You lying motherfuckers. If you're a climate person and you cite that number, you're a lying motherfucker. That came from a ridiculous study of a bunch of papers where they took several thousand papers looked in the abstract, which I'm okay with. And they threw out all the papers, which the abstract wasn't definitive. And, and said, what percentage of the, the, the abstracts that made the definitive statement um, said it was a crisis? They said 97%. Well, it turns out it was 77 out of 79 papers out of thousands of papers that they threw away most. 
Crichton point out, he says something like 0.4% of the sample size was used to come up with 97% of the, the 97% number. So they're lying, pathological lying. If you're a climate scientist, you quote that number, you're a liar. I'm calling you out. You're a shithead. Okay, I'm that angry at it. And I called the guy. There's a debate here. And I walked up afterwards. I said, you know, you're lying about that number. You cited it. You know, you're lying. He was hamming and hawing like crazy. And I said, you got to stop doing that. So I'm calling out the serious climate scientists and saying, if you don't clean up this, if you don't clean up this community, and if you don't start challenging shit, we're just going to throw you all away. You're just going to end up on some dust heap with all the Vax guys who supported Fauci. So, yeah. So I... And, and by the way, Kunin's statement about how man-made climate change is real, but not a problem. And then he proceeds to make the case you can't possibly predict it. He's contradicting himself because he should never say man-made climate change is real if you can't possibly make the prediction. So then, so I saw Thomas Sowell talk about it the other day. And he, he points out a very important one. He says, that one alone, I'm waiting for an answer. I'm not getting it. And that is, if you look at, you know, 300,000 years of the CO2 content of the ice, which you can get out of Greenland ice course, and the temperature, which you can get various ways, um, which I believe they know how to do it, that the, um, there's an 800-year lag. So you take the two curves, which they correlate beautifully, visually. If you look at this plane, you go, look at that. CO2 correlates with the climate. Well, there's an 800-year offset. CO2 rises 800 years after the temperature rises. And they're trying to say CO2 is causing the temperature to rise, but in fact, no. What happens is the temperature rises, the oceans degas, the CO2 comes out of the ocean, and the CO2 content goes up. And they just lie. They just ignore that. And then they, they you know, the, the, the Middle Ages. So Happer, I saw a Happer interview the other day. And I, I, I did a climate change podcast with a guy who's been following this shit since 07. I said, here's the, here's the killer question. I said, do you know? And, and this guy, I think, is honest. I said, do you know any solar physicist who believe the man-made climate change story? He says, no, nope, not a one. He's been doing podcasts writing about it since 07. Not a single solar physicist believes the climate model. And so Happer starts talking to me. He says, they're now changing all the numbers from the past. They're just going back and rewriting the numbers and backfilling. And so what was called the medieval warming period, when it was warmer than it is now, they're trying to rewrite those numbers to make it cooler. So he says, he says the numbers from the past are now changing. When you see so many people convinced, or at least saying publicly one thing, but you're coming to a different conclusion, what is the information or what is the uh, data that you think could convince people to see it the other way that are not in the scientific community? Or do you think that this is one of those arguments where logic is uh, logic succumbs to this like fake morality and people then believe, oh, to be a good person, I have to believe this thing regardless of what the evidence suggests. So it's, it's both categories. Um, okay. I think, I think there's sound thinking people that have simply never asked. And if you threw the data at them, I've given several talks on it. No one has ever come up to me and challenged anything I presented. Um, and 
And um, so I think there's people I could convince. You give me an hour, I could convince them. I could just show them shit after shit after shit that just doesn't make sense. You know, scandals, which the scientists claim they admit they lie because they got to keep the narrative going, that sort of thing. Um, then there's the group that, have you read Eric Hoffer's The True Believer? No, I have not. It's a brilliant book. I know we all get told what books to read, but this is a brilliant book. Written in 1953, and it's about mass movements. So it's kind of an early version of Matthias Desmet's more recent book, um, which is also a good book. Um, and, and the true believers are, are sort of the standing army, the people, the, the foot soldiers in, in movements. And they, they um, typically in these movements, you've got early thinkers, the guys who put forth an idea, like, uh, like in the social justice shit, the early thinkers were guys like Herbert Marcuse and his wife and stuff like that. And they put out the idea sort of in the abstract. And then, it, then you get the movers and the shakers. And what happens is the army, it's not a very flattering view, but the, 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 the guys who sort of run the ball, really carry the ball, really blocking and tackling, um, are typically um, serious losers, as described by Hoffer, who have very little to show for their lives. And he says, um, he says that what that does, it tees them up for two things. One is that they, um, that they, they say, well, anything would be better than what I'm experiencing. That's how you get people to sign off on socialism and things like that. And, 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 and by becoming part of a movement, you become more important. You become the true believer. And you become, you now have a sense of purpose. So I, I threw out a few barbs about climate change in my class and, and it, they landed like bricks. My brother pointed out, he says, it's like telling, it's like telling some, some Muslim that Muhammad's a pedophile. It just doesn't work. It's not going to work. And then I realized, yes, because the kids in my grad course now have been told by every authority figure since daycare right to the present that it's a crisis. What it is, is it's a $150 trillion grift. And everyone who wants a piece of that pie, and when you have a $150 trillion pie, there's a lot of people who want a piece of that pie. They'll all sign off on it. I got colleagues, you know, my opening three paragraphs, my grant proposal to DOE is about climate change. Right? They're not going to come out and say, look, climate change is bullshit, but I want money. There are no unfunded climate deniers. There are no funded climate deniers. It, it's a the Darwinian selection has cleaned the scientific community absolutely pristinely out of all the people who would question it because they no longer have money. They no longer therefore publish papers. They no longer have a say. So we've so they no longer have a seat at the table which is exactly, by the way, what they did with COVID and the vaccine. When you see the oil companies uh, getting mm -hmm. added to like the ESG index and Tesla being taken out, um, mm -hmm. is, that is that just a signal that even the people who would not normally be uh, associated with ESG, they're really good at lobbying, they're really good at spending money. They're just grifters, they're just grifters. That, that's Larry Fink trying to get Vanguard money, right? Uh, the, the ESG, or they're globalists, right? 
Uh, you know, again, the climate change guys want to tell us what we can eat, what we can't eat. They want to have our phone have some app that tells them we've used up our carbon allocation for the year or for the month. And you can no longer buy steak because you've used too much carbon. Uh, it just it just these are people they've got their polls that say that some like 60 percent of college kids nowadays are basically socialists. They have no understanding of what socialism has done throughout history. Not, not a shred of an understanding of how not only has it not worked, but it kills people by the countless numbers. Now, capitalism has bad days, but usually that's when capitalism is turning into socialism, right? Or fascism, actually. So when capitalism goes bad, it turns into fascism because they commandeer the machinery of government. And then they go destroy the hodlers. <laughs> Another topic that uh, you write about is um, biological males competing in women's sports. I haven't written yet, but yes, I'm going at it. Yeah. Well, you at least mention it in yes. um, in the first mm -hmm. part. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a little bit as to less about um, maybe how we got here, but where do we go from here? Is the four like one of the, the concepts that I'm really interested in is uh, there's a number of things uh, immigration at the border, uh, whether it is you know biological males competing in uh, women's sports leagues, all, all these things they have momentum, and right. to reverse momentum, there's only a couple of ways to do it, right? There's some kind of awakening. I, I think you know kind of the lockdowns were an awakening for some people, and they literally picked mm -hmm. up and they moved to other states. Like like there, there's got to be some extreme external thing that that forces it, or there also can be one or a very small group of people with the backbone, the courage, the leadership skills, the communication skills, et cetera, to stand up and you know basically educate folks and say, hey, look, this is not what I agree with. I'm in a leadership position. I'm going to change it. But outside of those two things, like how else can the momentum be stopped and potentially reversed? Well, so the challenge, the reason I'm not optimistic is because they can come up with new things to screw us faster than we can debunk. And I don't like the word debunk in general because it assumes that you already know the answer and you're going to collect the data to show the answer. And, um, but, but, but so, so let's say we win. I think, I think the, the transgenders in sports is going to die a, a natural death because it's so stupid. It's, it's insane. So, so when I write about it, I'm going to write about two things. First, I'm going to I've, I've, I've got notes and shit on all this. First of all, I'm going to point out that if you're a legitimate transgender, I, you have my sympathy because it's a tough world. And, and it's hard enough to be a teenager. You can be the captain of the football team and you still have self-doubts because you're 16 or 17 years old, 18 years old. And, and uh, you can be the hottest chick on the planet. You still think your ass is fat. Um, and um and and so it, it's in an age bracket where self-doubts are just everywhere. And the problem is you have these adults who themselves are suffering from, you know, transgender by proxy. And, and, and they're telling you, oh, your problem is that you're actually a female and, and we can make you happy. And so it's a sucker bet. So, 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 so um, the two things I'm going to go against is one is, doing medical interventions on teenagers. Um, I'm already seeing that starting to collapse because I think the um, 
I think the liability insurance for the medical system is now starting to soar because the, the hospitals that are doing transgender surgeries and injections and stuff are starting to get their asses sued off. And I want to see them destroyed because I don't think you should ever let a, a, a pre-adult make that call. And you say, well, what about their parents? And I go, uh, you know, we don't let parents tie their kids up in the basement and beat them either. If we get wind of it, society will step in on that one too. And so, you know, and, and they say, what if they think they're, you know, they really feel like they're a woman. I go, well, you know, when someone says, you know, I'm fat and they're anorexic, we don't let them identify as fat. We say, no, get them fucking help. And so, so this idea that someone who thinks they're female and, th and then you get, you know, middle schools with 50 transgenders in one middle school, this is not a medical problem. This is a social movement, right? And which is fine. It's a little embarrassing when you're in a fraternity years later and your friends find out you spent time in dress and, you know, eighth grade, but, um, but, but when we're sterilizing them and doing bad things and, 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 you know, the, the horror of horrors is the fake vaginas. I think those people are spending the rest of their life in extreme agony is my understanding. They just don't work. And, and it's the, the adults doing it, I think are, are, you know, when the Swedes first started doing, it, I think it was the Swedes, they spent several years working with the person to make sure that they really were a good candidate for some sort of transgender treatment. And and now it's as little as an hour chat with a shrink. And next thing you know, you're getting injections. And maybe these injections don't hurt you. But I've read just too many articles saying that, you know, it sterilizes you and it's not reversible and you have to keep doing it. And and so there, there's just there's just no way we should be doing this to kids. I, and, and they say, well, but if you don't do it young, then I go, I don't care. I just don't care. I, I just I, I, I think that doing something such an intervention on, on a teenager. And I, I think we're going to look up 10 years from now and there's going to be a bunch of adults who transitioned and they're going to be saying to their parents, where were you when I needed you? You needed to be my parents. You need to say, whoa, 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 slow down. Go ahead, wear a dress to school. That's great. Go ahead, let your hair out you know, braid your hair. I don't, I don't care, but no, we're not going to castrate you. And so, so there's that. And then there's the sports, you know, women in sports. When, when title nine showed up, there were two noticeable things. One is women started getting opportunities in sports they can get. And, and a number of men's sports were destroyed. So I happened to have been a gymnast in the old days and most gymnastics teams got wiped out wrestling programs got wiped out because they needed to somehow find a way to equate the two, two gender sports. And the lawyers on the campuses concluded that it was money spent or something. And so they wiped out men's sports to bring them down and elevated women's sports. Now, I've also coached two collegiate sports, both gymnastics and Taekwondo, and uh, both have women's components. And I see what sports do for women, and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Taekwondo, especially. Taekwondo is way better for the women than the men. It's not because it teaches them to be killing machines. It teaches you to have composure when someone's smacking you. And to say, look, if it doesn't actually hurt me, it's not a problem, right? If they actually damage me, it's a problem. But it's not a problem that someone's in my personal space. I have to deal with them. But you learn that's what it teaches you. How to. When I used to do Taekwondo, I was a little older and um, 
I, uh, I used to go right into range and use all defense. I'd spar against the Cornell kids. They were good. They're second in the nation. Um, and I'd go right into range. I'm smack away and defend. And, and, and it would drive them nuts. Actually, they go, he's in my face constantly. And I would just block and then I'd wait. And then all of a sudden they'd be, they'd kick me six, seven times. I was scoring a point. I'd see an opening. I'd smack them. And, uh, and it worked pretty well. And, and women learning that now, now you've got this thing where women have gotten their sports and now you're saying, Oh, now let's guys compete now. Let's let guys compete. So I, and what I'm stunned by is the entire female sports establishment is not standing up and saying, no, no. And Riley Gaines, I think she, I think she probably triggered the beginning of the end. She's been doing battle. And she said she had so many people behind closed doors without putting their names on it, saying, I support you to keep up the fight. And at one point, the head of the NCA said that. She says, I'm fighting you. Why would you say that? I'm fighting you. I asked a three-time Olympic medal winner what her views were, and I watched her tighten up. And I realized I just asked her a question that almost wasn't fair because if she answered it honestly and somehow it got out, she'd be kicked off the team. And that shouldn't be happening. But I think we're getting to the point now where women are bailing out of sports. There was a uh, jujitsu championship where tournament, there's tons of these things, where, where, where something like all the weight classes were won by dudes. <clears throat> and I'm going to call them dudes because I don't give a fuck. Um, and, and, and there were actually divisions that were all dudes. But at some level, I think some of these guys who are the most appalling cases are actually guys who are trying to destroy the idea. So when the weightlifter says, I'm a dude, I'm a chick, and then he breaks the world record, he's, he's jamming it in their face. So I'm not sure that they're all bad. I think they're doing, doing, doing the right work. So, well, Zuby, um, is I you must have been an athlete. Hand. I can see, I can see it in your face. You're chiseled. What, what sports you do? Uh, I played uh, football, basketball, and baseball in high school, right? And, uh, I mean, look, there's also, um, I, I don't think people quite understand the difference of athleticism, even between, um, in I think it was college, uh, yeah, in college, um certain sports would play other sports in their sport and right. without passing judgment, you know, there are certain sports where the people are bigger, faster, stronger, more athletic. And yes, they can use those, uh, those components to make up for the lack of, you know, finite or uh, uh, kind of nuanced skill. So if you take right. a football team and you go and you play soccer, right? Of course, uh, the soccer players are better at all of the skills that are needed for soccer, but if you play for a certain amount of time, there's a good chance that some of the football players may actually be able to score quite often because they're, they're just thugs. bigger, <laughs> they're well, just bigger know, faster, the, whatever. Right. One of the most famous lacrosse players of all time was Jimmy Brown, the running back. Yes. And I can't, he used to put his thumb on the ball. It turns out I, I knew the head coach and, and, but he, can you imagine being a midfielder and having Jimmy Brown running at you with the ball? 
You yeah. would just send up a smudge mark, right? So, well, well, so well, the other thing- it turns out the women's uh, Olympic hockey team practices by playing against prep schools. Yes. Boys prep schools. Yes. Right? Now, we've seen this, I think, um, uh, Clay Travis. I think I saw he's the guy who issued like a million-dollar bet. He said, I'll pick you know the best men's uh, high school team, and they'll go play right. a WNBA team or, or whatever. They'll and so, like, again, that is the extreme, you know, somewhat zero sum. I'm really trying to make a uh, um, kind of a bombastic, you know, point by uh, doing this. But to your point, we actually can just look at what the teams are doing themselves. And I don't think that it's a, a positive or a negative, right? I, I have a daughter. I, I don't think that there's certain sports that I would want her to play if I knew, you know, like what is she going to go play football? Right. She was like, Hey dad, I'm going to go sign up to be the running back. I would be like, uh, you know, no. let, let, let's make some different choices here. Right. And by the way, we're not going to do transgender surgery on you either. Right. Um, now, in fact, I'm, I, I, my son was a pretty good skater when he was real little. And I, I sort of waved him away from hockey because I decided that the hockey culture was kind of toxic. The parents were toxic. Um, but I don't think I'd want a kid to play football as much as I, I understand. I, I, you know, the, 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 the head, head wrists are, are there that are serious enough that, you know, you know, some, probably 75% of them now on Bitcoin. So, you know, we know they're demented. When you start thinking about um, 2024 and beyond, there's a mm-hmm. lot of problems in the world. Right. What is, what, what's the positive view? What, what what passes your filter as like these are the things that are going right? Well, it, again, Crichton's very good on this one too. Um, if you remember back in the 60s, it felt like the world was collapsing around us. You know, the Vietnam War was going on. To the older generation, they were watching their kids. All of a sudden, they discover free sex with birth control. They discover drugs. Rock and roll sounded awful to them, you know, Elvis Presley wiggling his hips. And, you know, so they went from Bobby Darren and Annette Funicello to to the doors very quickly. And uh, and so and then you had the civil rights violence in the in the cities and stuff. And so um, double digit inflation soon thereafter. So, you know, it, 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 there's always tough times. And and so you have to remind yourself that this is not that different. Again, Michael Malice's book reminds you how bad it can get. There's nothing in the United States, nothing in the United States that approximates what the Soviet Union was doing to its people. Um, anywhere, pick the worst place, Camden, I don't care. There's nothing. Um, and, um, and so I have to remind myself of that. Um, I do think we're heading into a period of tumult. So, so, you know, the great depression lasts what a decade. I argue it asks, I got an argument with a Stanford economist. I think it was Stanford. I said that the, the great depression didn't end until after world war two. He said, well, you know, and I talked about restricted consumption and things like that. And he said, yeah, well, you know, but, but it turns out the GDP showed, showed that um, the depression had ended during the war and, and I spent some time pondering it and I said, no, 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 no. Cause your GDP was a false GDP. You were creating shit and blowing it up. Right. So if you create, to me, gross domestic products needs a depreciation rate component built into it. 
So if you make a blender the last 40 years, your GDP is better than if you make that same blender, but it only lasts five years because it breaks. And that's one of the missing. Um, so you didn't produce the wealth making the chintzy blender that you did making the good blender. And, and so during the war, the depreciation rate of everything was phenomenal. We we're making battleships are getting sunk and we we're making planes were going down and we we're weapons and, you know, ammo and our, it was just very costly. And, but so I don't, I, you can't count that as GDP. And here's a GDP point that you might've picked up. You might not have. Tell me that's Robert Gordon's book. Um, you suggested this to me two years ago. Did you it's read it? The, it's one of the best books. I, I've told Phenomenal. tons of people about it. For those that Phenomenal. don't know, the rise and fall of American growth, and it basically makes the argument that uh, was it eighteen seventy to like nineteen forty. I think is uh, the timeline. Um, there's tons of uh, innovation. There's tons of GDP mm-hmm. growth. Um, my favorite example, well, two of them. Uh, one is the elevator and the importance of building urban density. By one mm-hmm. simple invention, um, running this, water, electricity. I was going to say the second one is every home is completely disconnected. You know, in 1870, and by 1940, they're all connected: uh, roads, electricity, you know, uh, phone lines, the whole thing. Orville Wright lived long enough to see jets. Wrap your brain around that, right? The, people talk about Amazon being pioneering. Amazon was not pioneering. The Sears Roebuck catalog was pioneering. Sears Roebuck catalog was Amazon. Yes, it took a couple of weeks, not a day. And it wasn't anywhere near as big. But we went from guys buying, you know, flour out of barrels and country stores all over the country. See, ordering shit, having a train deliver it to you. Sometimes you could order prefab houses and stuff, right? There, you could order all the car parts you needed from the Sears Roebuck catalog. And, uh, and so that was just Amazon. And Amazon's just a more digital version. And uh, the other thing that's really interesting is there's, remember the part about primary versus secondary invention. So electricity would be primary. And a vacuum cleaner or, or a dishwasher or something would be secondary. The best decade for secondary inventions was the 1930s. Right in the middle of the Great Depression, we invented more secondary inventions than any decade. So we created wealth during the Great Depression. And... Uh, and um, here's where we're going to get, we're going to be lied to in a very big way. And I, I hint at this, I kind of talk about it a little bit this year, where as the boomers get older, we're going to spend a fortune on healthcare. And that's going to go into GDP, when in fact, it is the cost of keeping up a rapidly depreciating asset. So we're, we're, it is the cost of struggling to keep an asset that's trying to go to dust from going to dust. That's not gross domestic product. That's depreciation. But it's going to show up as GDP. When you think about the national debt, uh, we're mm-hmm. at $33 trillion on our way to a gazillion. Um, we could try to grow our way out of it. That That is not going to happen. <laughs> that is a uh, it is a option, but I know you don't think it's going to happen. What What would have to change in order to be able to do it? I think we're already past the failsafe point. So I think we already have the commitments, you know, the social programs and the social security and the and the military. It's not, we we we'd have to drop our military to zero, and and Kennedy might do that, but um, he's not getting in the the White House. Um, and um, and 
And what do we grow? The debt grew last year 10%. So that's a death spiral. There's not a shred of evidence that the political system has any sort of backbone in it to stop that spending. We spent $200 billion on, on Ukraine. What? If I were Powell, I'd be livid. The guys who say Powell's beholden to the administration, I go, Powell, I would think, would want to wring the neck of the administration as he's trying to get control of monetary policy. And their fiscal policy is completely out of control. And so um, and so I think we're past that point. I think you could, you know, there's a town in California that, that had a water problem. It's a good example of a more general principle. And they said, we got to cut consumption 20%. There's no question you can cut 20% consumption of water anywhere. There's no question you can do it. At the end of the year, they had cut 3%. And and so people don't, we don't do it. We will drive the car off a cliff like Thelma and Louise and clean up the pieces later. And so um, what I can't picture is how it resolves. So it will resolve, right? It doesn't just stop. It's, a, it's an infinite loop, right? It will resolve. But I, I can't picture, they say, well, we're going to inflate it away. And I go, have you noticed how mad people are at inflation right now? We're just warming up if that's the model. We are just warm. I just, I went to get a roast at the store yesterday. Now, I'm not sure what the roast was they tried to sell me, but I, I said, yeah, I'm looking for a roast, a pretty big one. And I point to one. I said, tell me that one right there. How much would that cost? And uh, he puts on the scale and he says $240. I go, what? I said, I think we'll have a boneless turkey <laughs> instead. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it, the inflation rots societies and it's, it's making people grumpy and there's people going to the store. And I, I, you know, there, remember five years ago, you'd see some article that would say, you know, 50% of the population doesn't have a, a money in the bank to cover a $400 emergency. Where are they now? Right? They they're they they don't have they don't have a penny. That they, they, they swallow that four hundred dollars in, in six months, that margin of error. So paycheck to paycheck is not even true anymore. Now it's paycheck to credit card to debt to whatever. It's not like you can refi your house. Right. So we've milked that that we've milked that lactating cow down to bone dry. One of the um, most interesting stats, uh, and I wrote about it uh, the other day, is I basically said the financial markets are like uh, the crouched lion, right? They, they kind of sprint from faraway land, get close to the prey, crouch down, inch closer, and, and by the time the prey realizes they're there, it's over. Um, and it feels like financial markets have been doing that, but it, probably the best example is single-family homes in America have mm -hmm. been going up. Even though interest mm -hmm. rates are at over five percent and mortgage, you know, thirty-year uh, fix went over eight percent, and it's on a national level at least exactly the opposite of what everyone told you was going to happen. And well, so, I think though, I think it's a broken market though, so there is correct. no price to so so there's a, a they call it a tight housing market, but it's only tight because those who want to sell and those who want to buy can't can't see eye to eye, so there's no price discovery. And so the people who have the 3% mortgage 
simply won't sell because they don't want to then end up with a 7% mortgage. And, and so, so, but at some point people have to sell. It, boomers, again, rapidly depreciating assets. Their rapidly depreciating houses are going to be sold by rapidly depreciating boomers. And, and who's, who's going to buy those McMansions? Not Barry Sternlich. And, and, and I did a pretty good job, I think, this year of laying out the, the, the rise of the, the permanent capital purchasing of houses and how they, they made a business model out of buying single family homes, which is a terrible business to rent single family homes by getting them on fire sale in 0809, by, by hiking rents like crazy, by getting the capital to leverage the shit out of it. it you know, I, I read somewhere that, that, that Blackstone or Blackrock, I can never keep those two separate, um, was getting money at 0.15%. So you take a terrible business, you lever the shit out of it, you make a razor thin profit margin on a hugely levered portfolio. And then, well, what would hurt this business model? Well, rates rising <laughs> and rates have risen. So I, I figure that we are about to see explosions all over the real estate market. Why they are not yet audible is unclear to me, but they have to because the costs of buying a house just doubled. And so you either have to buy half the house or pay half as much or something, but it just doubled. And you know what it's like to buy a house. You sit down with a the realtor. They say, how much money do you have? How, what's your annual income? This is how much you can afford. And your wife says, that's what we're buying. And, and, and so, so if the, the realtor says that quantity of, is what you can afford divided by two now, because everything costs more, then, then who's, you know, uh, Round numbers, the real estate market has to cut in half. Will they ever let that happen? Or will Who's they step they? in? Yeah, yeah. No, no, the no. They have to let it happen. No. Because then we'll have an inflation problem. Remember how Twitter used to be loaded with people saying, oh, I'd love inflation because that'll make my mortgage cheaper? How's that working out for you guys? Is your mortgage any cheaper? And the answer is no, because, you're, you're, because your wages are as sticky as your goddamn mortgage. So- I had a guy, Joe McCann. Um, he's a former macro trader, worked at a place that you would know. Um, he's got a partner who worked for a very well-known billionaire investor, uh, managed you know hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, each individually. They now run a fund um, that's focused on the crypto market. And one of the things that he said to me is he his friend said to him, and now has kind of become his calling card, that essentially the government and the Fed is in a precarious position. It's either full-blown depression or dog coins to a trillion. That's right. their, you know that that's kind of their uh, their optionality, and so a full blown depression actually sounds way worse than dog coins well, to well, a but trillion. But crypto is highly inflationary. Correct. The introduction of crypto that's just a lot. It's not if you own it, right? It's an inflation hedge if you own it, but it, it's highly inflationary to the system because what's it worth now? Two trillion? Is that a round Some, number? Good guess. Something like that. Yeah. Call it two trillion. That's two trillion that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. That came from zero, right? That came from scratch. Ah, there's some upfront costs buying servers and stuff like that. I remember when guys were mining crypto on their telephones. Mm -hmm. Right? That was how easy it was in the olden days when when only nutballs like uh, Max Kaiser were buying it. Um, but um, yeah, I turned it down at ten. 
10 bucks a, a coin. Um, and I think uh, there's a there, there's a difference between like Bitcoin being kind of you know digital gold whatever, um, and I think you know macro investors saying like okay cool if I see gold this is a digital version like I can wrap my head around that. What he was really talking about was like the craziness, the absolute insane insanity of Dogecoin right, going up to right, you know fifty right. billion dollars or whatever. Right, and it, right. it was kind of this you know. Uh, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't create the wealth, right? That's that in itself is a fictional. It's just a it's not wealth creation, it's wealth aggregation. It's just shifting wealth. Yeah. And and it's at some point you have to create wealth. It's at, at some point the entire system is based on wealth creation, aka Robert Gordon's book. Not just, you know, NVIDIA is going to be a on a on a milk carton at some point, right? NVIDIA, NVIDIA's priced five times what Sun Microsystem was priced at before it did a 95% swan dive. NVIDIA is going to be laughable. It's going to be hysterical. It's going to be it's going to be a chapter of you know what not to do books. So you think Nvidia is going to be one of the poster children for Great Crash? Yeah, right. There's a lot of people well, who disagree with you. I know that's why it's so pricey, right? At the top, let's let's say the market. So, so as you know, I make a case for a 40 year secular bear market. A uh, four-deck, multi-decade bear market. Now, that's to say it won't go up and down. People will be able to trade it. But if you think, well, that could never happen, I go, don't tell the Japanese. They're still underwater 35 years later. And and another detail of the Japanese market is, let's say, if you own the Nikkei, you owned 14 of the 20 biggest com companies in the world. How could that go wrong, right? How could that possibly go wrong? Well, the guys who own the U.S. market now own the Mag Seven, and um, and even Buffett turned on sort of U.S. equities this year. He he kind of said, eh, you know, forty years, some number of years from now, the U.S. will not have the biggest companies. And so, um, I thought he so, said, so, Don't never bet against America. What, is he changing he, his mind? Yeah, yes, he appears to have changed his mind because he's looking at the craziness. Um, if you, instead of owning the Nikkei, you just started buying it, you're some 22-year-old Japanese kid who just got out of University of Tokyo, and you started averaging down, it took you 20 years to break even, 20 years to break even. Now, you're doing okay now, but, but when the, the boomers have to sell their equities, and they're talking about this big wealth transfer from boomers to their kids. I go, their kids have to buy the fucking stocks that the kids are supposed to get rich on. The boomers have to sell them to someone's and, and therefore, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be a wealth transfer without, without a depreciation of the ticker price because there's no one to buy it. And, and, and so I, I think we are going to have, I, I talk about about, a, about 10 tailwinds that we had from 1981 to the present. And then I kind of cover how those will now be headwinds. And it's not to say it'll happen today or tomorrow or next year or even this decade. But I'm confident that somewhere over the next 40 years, you're going to look up and say, you know, we haven't moved anywhere. Because we're sitting at 150% overvalued. And if you're 150% overvalued and you tread water, 
Inflation adjusted, you just tread water and say, okay, I'll just buy and hold and wait and let, let the market come back to fair value slowly. 35 fucking years. 35 years of treading water. You want to go straight down, it's like 68% or something. You want to, you want to, you want to, you want to stretch it out over 50 years, you can get a total gain of about 20%. Compounded as like 0.5% over 50 years. Once you are up at these nosebleed levels, there's no safe route home, period. Golden cash, that's it. Well, and then you've got to somehow beat inflation. So we're in treacherous waters. Someone will do well and they will be deified as the investor of the decade. And it might be a hodler, might be a goldler, might be, uh, might be some guy who found a couple of small companies that are just going to rock. My worst investment ever was I, I, I received shares of LabCorp of America in a, in a merger that eventually I didn't know what they were. I knew what I owned, but I didn't know what they were. And so I sold them. They're up hundredfold. That was the worst move I ever made was selling LabCorp of America. So, but I've done well. I, I'm, I'm, if I can tie inflation, I'll do fine. I'm in good shape. All right. I've got two last questions for you before I let you go. One, name three investors that you're impressed with right now that people may not know. Who are the people that you pay attention to what they're talking about, uh, what they're doing? Um, when you've got a question or an idea, you you call and talk to them. Who, who are uh, uh, three people that just may surprise folks? Well, I don't know if they're going to surprise because um, – a guy who I get a lot of useful information from is Jesse Felder. Um, I get a lot of useful information off a guy who just appeared on my radar about a year ago, is, but it's not about investing. It's more about macro. Is, is Peter St. Ange. He's on Twitter. If you're not following him, you should. Peter St. is Prof. St. Ange, O-N-G-E. And uh, brilliant macro analyses, snarky as shit, does one a day, very entertaining, rising star. Um, and uh, who do I think really has, I, I, you know, I have money with a couple of guys, a small cap investor who I like a lot is Eric Cinnamon. I like the guys at Horizon Kinetics. I haven't given them money yet because I think there's going to be some serious whooshing the mistake I'll tell you what the mistake I made in 0809 was. So I was so liquid. Um, I was so convinced, you know, Einhorn, I think at least he says he invented the phrase, but if what's a 90% correction? Well, it's an 80% correction and then cuts in half. And and so so if 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 you buy because it's dirt cheap because it's dropped 50 and then it drops to 75, you just lost half your money. Now, better than buying it at the top, but th this I started to talk about what's the top. The top is some Tuesday afternoon at 2.03. The Nikkei hit its peak. And the peak represents period of maximum optimism as evidenced by the price. And the precise moment when the justification for optimism is zero, 0, 0.0. .0. You're about to go in through the valley of death for the next 35 years. And, um, and no one knows it. 
So it's like uh, Father Guido Sarducci's coming in a going planet. Do you remember? You know that? You, do you remember that skit from SNL where he's talking about he's talking about uh, how you get older and then you get younger? And he says, and you meet this a young a chick. He's speaking in his Italian accent, and and he says, and says you're twenty and she's a, she's a eighteen and she's really hot. Next thing you know, you're twenty two and she's a sixteen. And he says, now you're in a bigger trouble. And and in some sense, the markets are like that. You know where you're at, but you don't know which direction they're going. Now, I'm confident that um, the markets have big downside as expressed by either serious price drop or seriously long period of just suck ass. And to me, time is my enemy, not price. I would love to have a massive correction. I'd love to have a three-year drop into the Great Depression. Um, what I don't want to do is what would suck would be, be our last really correct serious correction was 1967 to 81. We lost 75% inflation adjusted and it took 14 years. Losing 75% is a bitch. Giving up 14 years of your investing life, a third of your investing life, really. To get nothing, to, to lose that 75%, that kills you. That's what killed the, the Nikkei investors. Time, time, time is your enemy. So time's your friend in a bear, bull market and time's your enemy in a bear market. I'm predicting a multi-decade bear market where time will be your worst enemy. And I don't know. I think the markets could be uninvestable. I, I did a spaces with George Noble. What an honor. Um, and I said, I thought the markets would be uninvestable. He asked me to explain. I said, the Nikkei. He says, well, you could short. I said, no, you couldn't. It took too long. You'd burn your money to a crisp trying to short the Nikkei because it didn't just drop like a stone. It just worked its way down over about 15 years. You go broke trying to short that thing. So I think the markets could become absolutely uninvestable besides the occasional lucky person who can cherry pick. But that that's in the seem to lab, you know, fooled by randomness moment, right? That's where there are going to be in, in, in a sample size of 10,000 money managers. There's going to be some who flip the coin heads 10 times in a row. It's statistical. So there will be winners. Are they because they're geniuses? I got to figure Druckenmiller had a special touch. I think David Tepper has a special touch. Dalio, who I think is a hoser, but I read his book and and it was very good. It was kind of fourth turning with a greater military and economic component. But he sees us going into a period of great uh, stress and violence. He's, he, we're right on the cusp of a of a you know fifteen twenty year cycle. And so I'll ask what. My last question is, uh, you put the books that you read each year at the end of the letters, mm -hmm. um, so people can go check those out. But uh, if you had to pick one or two books throughout your life that really stand out as having the biggest impact on the way you think, the way you see financial markets, uh, or even think about some of the other topics we've talked about, what, what are like the one or two books that you would suggest? Um. It's kind of an obscure one called Banking in the Business Cycle, written in 1937. I actually read the original, but then they reprinted it. So you can buy it probably on Amazon by Phillips and McManus, I think. And it was about what really created the Great Depression. And it was an Austrian view. Um, the Price of Time is a modern book that everyone should read. Um, and if, you know, Edward Chancellor is considered God in this world of, you know, credit and 
and crisis. And, and, and he says that when interest rates get to 2%, you always have a crisis. Well, they went negative. So, you know, I think Edward's probably uh, watching the tickers with interest. Uh, the, the great crash of 1929 is a classic. Um, um, I think I, I really like Robert Gordon's book, which we talked about. I really like the great believer, the true believer, which we talked about. Um, Sleep out there, the, the the mystery of capital by Hernando de Soto is about international markets and international economics, and why Africa is never going to be a a hub of financial of wealth creation. Um, um, I'm trying to think what else I should put together this list. I have at least a dozen years of it of books. Um. My big advice is audiobooks. When your wife sends you to the store, she's actually asking you to read for 10 minutes each way. When I commute 12 minutes to work, it's 24 minutes of reading. Um, I can get through about 25 books a year just in the car. And uh, and so, uh, and you can always get through the book. Um, and uh, I encourage people to read history. I read about the Middle Ages. Middle Ages are great, by the way. Ah, World Lit Only by Fire. Great book. Very snarky. Very funny. Yeah, but I've read about Roman history, and I've read probably half a dozen books in the Middle East. Um, nothing stuck. Um, avoid books that um, – too many names, too many foreign names. I started to read Gordon Chang's book about China, and it was just too many Chinese guys. Um, Whereas Michael Mouse's book about Russia is not. So he avoided that trap somehow. And so I'm, I'm a big, I'm, I'm partway through it right now, but it's an unbelievable book. Uh, how about you? You tell me. Add some. Um, I would say books over the last, I don't know, year or so. Um, that I would really suggest. I got a whole list here of, uh, Give us, give us no coin or the book. If you had one book, you said, "Look, I'm, I got one, one pitch." What's the pitch? I'm going to read Lynn Alden's oh, book. Yeah, in terms of like uh, just a book to read about crypto stuff uh, or Bitcoin. Um, there must Lynn be Alden one that's the broken Bible. money. Yeah, it's either so that's Lynn my Alden next broken book. money. That's my, ne- that's my next book actually. Or uh, Safedine, uh, the Bitcoin Standard. I would say those two are the. The uh, the books. My buddy Jason Williams he wrote one uh, called Hard Money You Can't F With. Um, that's pretty good too. That's like those yeah. three. Um, let's see books uh, this year. Uh, Barton Biggs Hedgehogging. You ever read that I think one? I, I think I read that one. That's yeah, got that that's about good. fifteen years old. I think that one's got yeah. some age on it. Yeah the uh, the Raven of Zurich is a good one. Um, I really like this. Uh, it's called Rules for Aging. Roger Rosenblatt. It's kind of like a you know um, pithy things that you can do in your life to make. Yeah, here's it better, one for you. Whatever. Millionaire next door was very good. Oh yeah, that is a good one. I I once stood and listened to a guy who I, I might call kind of a, a digital friend. I don't know what you call him, where he gave a talk on ten stupid books, and that was one of them. And I, I afterwards I said, "You didn't read it, did you? There's no way you read that book." He just thought it sounded stupid, and um, it's about saving. It's about the psychology of saving. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think if you don't understand that what it's really about is saving, not about not about investing. It's about saving. So so you may have noticed I had an expensive year. I bought my wife a car and I had to do some shit around the house. And I still saved 25% of 25%. my gross salary. Right. And, and so so when my kids were in college, I still had a net savings when my kids were mm-hmm. in college. And uh and that that is the one time I said to my dad, I think I should be saving more. He started to rip into me. I said, Well, I no, I'm saving between 25 and 30% of my gross. He said, Oh, never mind. Right. He backed off. He thought I was not saving anything. I said, No, but I had to, I'd be able to do better. If I, I was living on a low salary, got some big raises, should have been able to live, should have been able to save a huge percentage of that. But your, your, your life expands to fill your wealth. Right. You somehow find a way. So if you can save 25 percent of your gross. The rest is noise at some level. I uh, I could not agree more. Where can we send people to find you on the Internet if they want more Dave column? Well, I do try to answer emails. They're getting this time of year. It's it's a bit of a nightmare, um, but I try to answer them. Um, and um that's how I met a lot of people. I, I don't cold called an email like to Rickards or something like that. And, 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 and they'd answer back. Ah, oh, you know, uh, some very famous guy. I just had an email exchange with Jeff Sachs. And he says, thank God we're not university presidents. Right. And I'm going, no kidding. Um, and then I'm at, uh, um, I'm at Twitter at David B. Column, where my pinned tweet is my year in review. I appreciate your time. Everyone looks forward to this every year, and we will do it again in 2024, my friend. Adios.